this is the Macworld Podcast, episode 510 for June 1st, 2016. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Uh, this is Glenn Fleischman. I'm a senior contributor at Macworld, and joining me is Susie Oakes, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Howdy ho, Glenn. How are you today? I am feeling pretty relaxed and calm. Um, I hope everybody who is in uh, celebrates the uh, American holiday of Memorial Day had a uh, thoughtful and quiet uh, extended weekend. And uh, I know I did. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, it was nice. I went to a baseball game with my little boy. Baseball? I've heard mm-hmm. of that sport. Uh, There's a minor league team down in San Jose called the San Jose Giants. And oh, yeah. it's so much fun. It's adorable. It's just good Minor league is great. Outing. You find a good local team and mm-hmm. uh, the tickets are cheap and you just go and you root people on and they care that you're there because there aren't always that many people there. So when you root, they're actually listening to you. It's kind of fun. Yeah. It's great. You're going to see some terrific players who eventually, some of them, make it to, what was it, the big show? So it was called? Yes. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, I know something about baseball almost. And then the Warriors won the Game 7, so going I saw, to the finals. And, and guess who was out front uh, in the photo on that uh, cover of, uh, was it the Chronicle? It was Eddie Q on, yep. the, on the court. I'm always <laughs> looking for him because he sits courtside, <sighs> but I never, like, the, the just he must be in a spot where the TV cameras don't usually catch him. Well, he was standing and shirt untucked, I think, and uh, with uh, Steve Ballmer-like uh amount of energy in his body. Oh, yeah. It was pretty he's incredible. into it. He's super into it. I actually get to go to one of the games coming up, so I'm going to look for him there. That's great. That's excellent. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. It's good. Support those teams. Good town for the sports ball. You got a few. Yeah, you got a few of them there. Uh, so um, I should start off the episode by... Um, Don't worry. We haven't pivoted into a sports talk talk. That would be very difficult, given I know very little about sports. I could, <laughs> I, could I guess. I've we'll actually spin thought it I, off. Susie explains sports to Glenn. I, uh, no, I think is, I, dad was a big, and uh, Rain's a big sports fan, and uh, not a super fan, but a big fan. He knows statistics and, like, you know, the horse racing and boxing and hockey and football, you know, everything, right? So I know how every sport works. I just don't watch them. It's funny. It's not, yeah. And I love my dad. It's not a reaction to my father. Just never got into it. This computer stuff is obviously much more interesting than sports, right? No, it's all okay. Everything's okay, folks. Everything is the same. Uh, so we should start this episode by uh, ritually bowing and kneeling to uh, all of the billionaires uh, in the, who uh, <laughs> fund media and control uh, the planet. Because we don't want to get, you know, we don't want to offend anybody's feelings. Don't so, make uh, them angry. I know we want to. Uh, uh, don't want to. Don't want to get anybody to. Uh, you know, unfortunately, MacWorld is not known for uh, publishing excerpts of sex tapes. Not yet. Not yet. There's nope. always time. Please <laughs> don't send us any sex don't tapes. Send us any sex tapes. <laughs> so we're unlikely to get into a situation, but um, yeah, we'll just gloss over that. For those of people who haven't followed the Peter Thiel uh, story in Gawker, you can find those many, many stories about that online. But as a journalist, I, I you know, start. My whole I, Insta paper right now is full of, I still have a lot of Prince stuff in there from when Prince died. I was like, I wanted to save everything and read it later. And then I just kind of never could because I'm still sort of oh, sad. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and now it's like the, all the Prince stuff is getting buried by like 25 articles about Peter Thiel. So I've learned a lot of interesting things about this guy, but it's like, I don't want to go too far down that alley either because it's crazy. There's been a lot written. <laughs> There's a lot written. Well, it's just this, it's just this thing is like, we're in a, in a position Actually, I think IDG is unique right now because uh, uh, after the uh, founder passed away uh, two years ago, it's owned by a foundation right now. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's a multi-billion dollar corporation with different production arms. So so the foundation, a benevolent foundation, benevolent non-fo- non-profit overlords, um, but a lot of media is controlled by – Billionaires, and then you have uh, you know like Bloomberg owns Bloomberg News and Business Week, and um, you have bi- you have billionaires or hundred millionaires who are uh, voting rights majority for other publications. Uh, New York Times family controls all the voting rights and so forth. And it's not I'm not even talking about conspiracy issues; it's how it is. And then you have tech billionaires who don't want coverage, uh, unpleasant coverage, as nobody wants unpleasant coverage about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the Peter Thiel case just makes it concerning that someone who has the money to wage endless war and fund other people's lawsuits um, on issues that aren't directly related to why they're unhappy with the publication could uh, wind up taking some people down. Um, so just it's a, there's a chilling effect. If that suddenly reduces the amount of coverage 
I did notice one publication, uh, it was a major news publication, said, yeah, we're going to redouble our coverage of Silicon Valley. That's <laughs> like, <laughs> you guys can do this, but, you know, th- but there's a difference. And, you know, there's no difference in the First Amendment between uh, gossip and hard news. Um, there is difference between, you know, invasion of privacy and public figures and some other tests uh, and stealing, uh, stealing stuff versus being given it as a source and so forth. Anyway. We'll continue to do what we do, which is uh, talk about uh, the milliampere hours and batteries and um, how fast Macs go. So we have no chilling effect here. The new Mac is way faster than the old Mac. Yes. Oh, controversial. Controversial. Uh, Speaking of new stuff, though, a story just came out that uh, that you and I are very eager to talk about because uh, uh, not that long ago, I wrote a piece that reflected, I think, some general sentiment that it seems like Apple is slowing down its product uh, refresh cycle. And I was arguing that's a good thing because it means you can rely on, uh, you know, what you have being stable for a while, you know, interfaces and features and, uh, and also not feel like you're being left behind. So it's, you know, it's always frustrating when you buy a thing and then six months later for the same price, you get a thing that's 20 or 30% faster. You feel better when there's a longer cycle, even though it's effectively the same situation. And it's also, we feel, I think, I don't think it's fair to say, I'm not going to speak for you, but you can chime in on your opinion here that Apple does seem to have a lot of stuff on its plate. And in the past, I said, ah, they can handle it. And in recent several months, I'm like, maybe they do need to slow down. And that that's what they did with iOS 8 to iOS 9 was not a major overhaul. It was a really good refresh. Yosemite El Capitan, uh, even, um, you know, watch OS, uh, cycle is slower. Like we, a lot of stuff seemed to have slowed down and that gives Apple time to perfect and improve, which is what we feel like they need, especially around, uh, services and certain other you know areas, uh, that they can focus on. So the, the story that came out is that Apple is, uh, may not be, uh, doing this. Uh, what we've called the, a lot of people call the TikTok cycle. So on the, for the iPhones, t- for iPhones, right. Yeah. I mean, the story sort of, is the iPhone cycle might go out to every three years for like major refreshes, like major redesigns. Like they would still refresh it as they have been doing, but you know, up until now it's been TikTok, Like you say, like the first one has a new case and a new look. And then the second one keeps that look and just upgrades the internals. They might do, they might, I'm, th- I'm this year we've seen, heard a lot of rumors that the 2016 iPhone will be, you know, pretty much similar to the the 6s and the 6 and then next year they'll go to OLED and stuff. And at first that that seemed really odd like why are we hearing rumors about a phone that's still a year out? But yeah, I mean going to OLED is a really big deal just I mean, you know, the the whole process for making them needs to change. So that would be something that maybe, you know, would leak out a little early if they're retooling factories and there's a major change in the supply chain. So it's all kind of starting to come together and look like, you know, these rumors are kind of starting to validate each other. Um, So yeah, we might not see a a crazy redesigned phone this year if they, and, and, and that could signal like just, you know, this one time blip because of the OLED switch, or it could be Apple saying like, yeah, I mean, we've seen the cycles of of how people buy these and how people use them, how long they use them. And now that, you know, everyone's not upgrading every two years when your contract runs out because, you know, we're moving away from contracts, it might be time to kind of slow down that process a little bit and go to every three years with a new iPhone look. It's, it could be consumer beneficial also because on the talk years or when the big things change, like the tick years are, hey, it's a new form factor. There's usually a number of little things, but often the components are effectively unchanged from the previous year or previous design. So you don't get the big camera improvements or or other things. I, there's a chart. If you, people go to macworld.com and search on TikTok, uh, you'll find my article. We can put that in there. Uh, put in show the show notes, notes too. Yeah. Um, and because uh, I did a chart of where I looked at where, ma- like, you know, camera of, of still in video uh, improvements, uh, screen resolution, several other things, and where they're introduced. And they're pretty much all uh, on the talk cycle. This, like, you know, hey, we've so we've introduced the case one year and the next year we do the features. So if it's tick, tock, talk, then you have two years of improvements and maybe they go from, you know, 12 megapixels to 20, or they add an optical stabilizer in a lower end model or whatever. Um, all those things happen on um, the years in which they're not dealing with retooling their entire production line to come up with a new case. And um, the iPhone SE at some level is the ultimate expression of that because we don't know if they're using the identical production line, but we do know that the, the, you know, device is effectively the same case, uh, you know, down to, um, 
almost everything but the uh, chamfered edges style. <laughs> the matte like, chamfered edges. Yeah, exactly. And that's the big that's the big thing. If that's the only thing you can find, then maybe they are using uh, everything they learned uh, about perfecting that case design and other factors. They can they can build on, and I I think that's kind of um, I think it's kind of great actually. So um, uh, there's it's funny you know Apple needs to push people to buy more phones. They want to shift more of the people out there on Android and feature phones into smartphones. Uh, they know they still only have a tiny percent of the worldwide market, and there's also a lot of growth that happened in people owning smartphones, especially in countries that are not you know uh, England and America and uh, you know. Some, few other countries that have high penetration, um, or say Western Europe and America, a few other places. There's a lot of room for smartphone growth. And I feel like they can focus better on that when they're not constantly uh, making you know phone changes. They're like, all right, case, here's another case. Okay, change or whatever. Um, it makes it easier yeah. when they have a same model for a few years. It doesn't become, they can sell a cheaper version of it and people don't know the difference, right? So you have um, the third year to phone, the first and third year look identical, but the first year phone costs $200 less than the third year phone than the talk, talk phone. Right. Yeah. Um, and we've seen that the iPhone SE is effectively the, the outgrowth of that, where they took a number off it. It could wind up being on a three year cycle or two year cycle before they even do it. Another internal revision. And it looks identical to phones released over years. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it takes a little bit of the stress off them. And I don't think it, uh, if I felt like they were going to stop putting new stuff in, I might be more upset about it. I'd be like, oh, no, now they're not going to do anything. They're just going to rest on their laurels and cash checks. Like, no, I think they're giving themselves more room to play with things. Yeah, within they're not the asking anyone to buy like a three-year-old phone. You know, they're, they're still going to make sure each year's phone has the best technology. But yeah, I think removing this like sort of artificial deadline for coming up with like cool new designs every two years is, is going to be a good thing for everybody, for Apple and, and the consumers. Also news is that they may finally get rid of their 16 gigabyte entry level model. That's an exciting uh, little tidbit. That was in our rumor roundup that we keep refreshing as these things get updated. So um, and frustrating to people to so have a 16 So exciting. Gig. If they really do that, that would be great. I mean, it's about time. It's past time. Um, like I've still been using the iPhone SE since I reviewed it because I love how it fits in all my pockets, blah, blah, blah. You've heard this. But I was showing it to a friend of mine who is still using the five, I think even the five. And she's like, I got to get a new one. I didn't want to get one of the big ones. I'm like, well, you're in luck, friend. The iPhone SE is here to save you. And she's like, no, no, no. It tops out at 64. So that's a bummer. Like for her, I was like, well, you're on an iPhone five. Like it's still going to be better. <laughs> um, Wait, she, what does she need 128 gigs I for? I know, though? right? Well, she's got a kid and, you know, like movies and, and apps oh. and, and a lot of pictures and videos, I think. It's, no, that's very reasonable. I mean, I yeah, get email all like, the time to Mac 911 where people yeah. are maxing out their storage. She's on an like, iPhone. I just don't want to have to, you know, deal with uh, moving all the pictures around. And I like to know that everything's just there. It's totally reasonable. Although you may make sure she knows about optimized storage for her iPhone. Yeah. I'm also be reviewing a little, like one of those little thumb drives that, with the lightning thing on it now. So I'm like, you know, oh. you can use that as a way to get your but you just don't want to have to manage it i mean this is kind of google's thing is like stuff is available because it's all in the cloud and apple doesn't do it quite like that and uh, icloud photo library is like a half measure and you know and all the media you buy from apple it's available but like the download you have to download you know you download three gigabytes when you're out of the starbucks probably not uh or you're in an airport you're not able to get it fast enough so um yeah, I think there's still a need for it. But I, I assume the difference between 16 gigs and 64 gigs in flash RAM is a very small number. Uh, I've given... never had more than 64, and it's always been okay. But, I mean, yeah, I'd love to go up. It's going to cut their margin. So I think they've been waiting until they can get they can push their margin another area because it's – I don't Maybe know, now that they're saving all this, you know, design R&D. Yeah, but it's going to cost them a few bucks a phone. I mean, I don't yeah. know if it'll be like $2 or $5, but, you know, it'll cost hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to uh, eliminate the 16 gig model and not charge more for it. Because ostensibly, this is the thing. If you look at that chart that I had in the article, uh, you know, I was looking at how Apple handled with TikTok cycles and revisions, uh, they always had an eight gigabyte and then a 16 gigabyte low end model. And sometimes they would sell a 16 gigabyte bottom of the line model one year. And the next year it would be the cheap phone, but it would only have eight gigabytes, right? Like with the iPhone five, I think yeah. switched to that. 
and which was part of their not a scam, but it's like another way for them to reduce. It felt like uh, a scam a little bit. Well, but eight, gigs was, eight gigs about, gigabytes went too low for so long. It was sort of like so if long. you're a real like iPhone guy, like you have to get the the new one. It kind of made that one like just less of an option yeah, for was, like serious phone people. They were really trying to preserve margin as they dropped that was the price a hundred bucks for like your child. Yeah, it's terrible. So you know when you get to sixty four gigabytes, if they suddenly go, if the sixty four gig model is the baseline model, and you can get a sixty four gig phone for four hundred bucks. Or maybe five hundred or something or five fifty. That's a significant change uh, in how they price things. So, uh, but I also think it makes it much more attractive and it makes them more competitive if people are deciding among different smartphone makers, which some people are. We're not all we're not all tied into an ecosystem yet. Um, well, with the iPad Pro, when they went to from the iPad Air two, and they kind of like messed up the TikTok cycle on that too, is keeping the iPad Air two around an extra year and then going to the nine point seven inch iPad Pro. But anyway, that wasn't my point. My point was they got rid of the 16 gigabyte model. Like the base iPad Pro um, is 32 gigabytes, but they didn't keep it the same price. They did charge you more. So now like that $499 like entry level brand new 10 inch iPhone, it's like, I'm I'm sorry, iPad is is now $499 or mm-hmm. like $599, sorry, $599 for the, for the 9.7. So they could do that with the phone. People would be upset. I think people are already going to be upset if they're getting rid of the headphone jack. People are going to say, "Oh, they can't, they can't innovate. Like they're they're pretending that's innovation, and you guys are sheeple for buying it." So it's going to be it's going to be fun. There's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of ink spilled, a lot of it's, drama. It's good. It'll be entertaining. It'll be entertaining. Uh, yeah, I mean, Apple's got this very interesting. So what position we're learning is that, is that Americans just want to fight. Let's, yeah, let's fight. Well, yeah, there's, uh, if you go search uh, now on, on, on Google News for an article about fandom, there you'll see a fight. There's an article about fandom and comics and creators, and let's go fight there. But um, it's like a civil war or something. So, yes, everything's a fight. Marvel reference. Uh, yeah, the the Apple has incredibly high margins, and it's preserved those very effectively over the years. And the argument is that, you know, they so they have hundreds of billions of dollars in cash available, like, you know, on hand or in short-term, uh, you know, convertibles. And uh, they have a dividend they repay to their shareholders, and they invest increasingly huge amounts of money into R&D. So ostensibly, the motivation for us to pay this margin, the reason that there hasn't been that much price sensitivity. I mean, the iPad, we have to go back to the introduction of the iPad the last time you felt like you were getting a bargain, right? Like where you felt like this was a premium product at a very low price because $500 for the original iPad, it was it was leaked. It was going to be 1000 They came out at 500 and it essentially destroyed the ability for other companies to release tablets effectively for years. Um, it took a while for the industry to fire up to actually be able to compete because Apple had taken the air out of the room and everyone else knew they were actually making a decent margin at 500 and they sold a lot of upgrades that – uh, especially for for uh, storage that made it easier for them to uh, pick up margin there. Um, but so we're, I mean, I think the argument is we are willing, we know Apple makes a lot of money off of us. And what we want as a trade-off is we want that they do everything right, that we're getting the best thing. Um, it's not like a premium a deluxe, whatever. It's that it's almost an egalitarian sense of deluxe. Like I'm going to get a great phone. So is everyone else. And that's cool. I'm willing to pay a higher price. I could get a cheaper phone, I got this Moto G sitting here, which is perfectly nice, and it was like two hundred bucks. And it's an Android phone and does a lot of what I need. Uh, so you know, maybe I should buy that. It's like, well, no, no, I want something that has that's the Ne Plus Ultra. Um, <laughs> and so Apple's been able to preserve preserve that. And so I think when they dip into their margins, we get people get annoyed when they see something like, okay, the only thing different now is it went from sixteen to sixty four gigs, and you're charging me a hundred dollars more, and now the low end price that I've been trying, I know, you know, it feels like Apple is playing games with us as opposed yeah. to making a marketing strategy. Like you have to eat a little bit sometimes, Apple. You got to eat a tiny bit of that margin and then they make it up in volume, right? Yeah, that's why people get so mad about stuff like you got to buy an adapter. You got to buy like, you know, the cables are so expensive because like it, it feels like we're being nickeled and dimed sometimes and you're like, no, I, you know, I, I paid a lot to get in here. And yeah, like now that I'm in, I, you know, and I'm happy to do that. But like, yeah, you just want to oh, yeah. feel like well, you're being treated, you know, right. When Apple didn't ship a Lightning to 30 pin adapter, when they started shipping lightning phones, you're like, come on, do it for one year for crying out loud. Yeah, it costs money. It wasn't even ready at launch day. We had to wait a couple of weeks for oh, it. Oh God. Yeah, right. You know, it just it just feels the same thing. Like USB C, at least they had a couple of adapters ready and they're expensive. Uh and I've had one of them fail, actually. Um 
And the other one I'm not so sure about. So I'm not sure how terrifically made they are. Maybe there's issues with the electrical current that has to pass over it. But um, you know, they had a couple where they're like, the USB-EC ecosystem is going to be fantastic. It's like, well, you're not making it. So it's a hard promise. And it took a year before we really had a robust uh, ecosystem. So there is that, that idea of like, if you're going to do something that's dramatically different, sticking an adapter in there hurts your margins, We're costs lucky you the money. Chromebook got it too. I, th- I think that really sped it up. Yeah, I, I believe so. I believe so. And then now we're starting to see it into, uh, it starts to get into smartphones. Um, that's that's pushed it too. But I mean, I like USB-C. I think it is the future. Uh, well, let's go on to cancer rats because that's a fun subject. <laughs> um, I know. I, I just want to talk about this briefly because people will have seen the coverage. and um, You were tweeting up a storm about it over the weekend. I didn't well, follow it super closely because I was like, uh-oh. Now what? But I'll um, give you here, I'll give you a TLDR. Here's the down low, the TLDR, the the skinny, the precise. Uh, so <laughs> a study came out, and uh, as is the, unfortunately the problem with the way science is covered by mainstream media, the MSM, of which They're we the are worst. We, that's right, we're we're a trait. <laughs> this is an interesting thing. So for listeners who don't understand, don't know this, MacWorld and IDG's publications, we are considered trade publications because we focus on a segment of an industry, even though we're written for consumers and normal people and, you know, small business owners and whatever IT folks, um, we're still, we're trade, but, and so trade it traditionally has been looked down upon. Oh no, trade publication. And like you're either in bed with companies or you're blinded or whatever. It's like, but trade publications, we have expertise. We actually work on things really deeply. And there are trade publications for aspects of science as well. And there's, you know, general interest science publications, and then there's science publications that are intended for people in the fields. They're not called trade, but they're effectively the same thing. Mainstream media is this smorgasbord of everything else that's out there. And um, especially with a lot of newsroom layouts, layoffs, the uh, number of specialized people within uh, larger publications has reduced. Or people who, there used to be a science desk, and now the science desk has sort of been diffused because they hired a lot of people to do video. This is true in a lot of places. And the video people might actually have science background if they're doing science stuff too. But a lot of the expertise in the last 15 years has, has drained out of newsrooms into, so specialties gone, it's much more generalists and so forth. So a story like this comes out. This is a non-peer-reviewed study, preliminary data, um, released in a very weird way where apparently the study leaked and then there was a press conference uh, in which some of the people weren't involved, uh, who were involved in the study weren't there, and in which they did a lot of the people involved in it at this national toxicology group, uh, American, it's a, a part of the U.S. government, uh, kind of rah-rah the report in a way that the data didn't reflect. So they didn't release enough statistical data for outside parties to analyze it effectively. And uh, the whole thing was kind of a mess. So they, they released a paper that included it's called a preprint, and it includes comments from people who had reviewed the paper but haven't all been incorporated yet, um, and uh, and this, pa- this study hasn't been replicated. So all that said, it purports to show that there's a uh, correlation between exposure to uh, cellular uh, uh, telephone signals, whether that's the GSM or CDSMA standard. They tested both groups, and they tested um, uh, seven groups of rats. Uh, 180 in each group. One group is the control group that got no exposure and was sealed away from radiation of any kind. The other, uh, there are three groups each for GSM and CDMA, and each group had a different exposure level. So the exposure was vastly more than most people would have in their lifetime. Uh, rat studies are considered uh, unreliable, uh, real predictors, or a good way to get some insight into something that might be there, but then you have to go and do f- additional work. Um, and here's the thing. <laughs> so all that said, the headlines were uh, uh, something like, you know, cellular phones finally shown a link to increase cancer. It's like, well, when you actually looked at the data, even the data that was presented, female rats in, had no additional um, higher cancer rates. The control group had zero incidence of cancer of the expected kinds in the study period, which is weird because there should have been some. So there's something going on with the control group. The control group died younger than all the rats. Uh, so the real story is, and then the male rats in the study got cancers at what was ex- what the expected rate is for that population of rats and those ages. So the study, you read the study, it says, uh, rats found to develop cancer from exposure to cell phone radiation. And in fact, it's um, rats exposed to cell phone radiation weirdly live longer than rats not exposed to it. <laughs> oh, man. And uh, female rats don't get any real cancer, you know, above average, and male rats get it at the expected level. So it's this, uh, there's something really wrong with the data. 
uh, in terms of how it's being presented. And most of the data won't be available to 2017. Uh, some of the reviewers raised significant issues about the presentation because it's cherry-picking it's a problem with science. This is a $25 million study that tracked over 1,200 rats over multiple years. It took years to develop, then years to run. There's a lot riding on it. And, you know, so they push out a headline. Uh, one of the people, uh, the person who led the study, who pushed for funding within the group, left and is now at the Environmental Defense Fund, which is a great organization. But he's now on an, in an advocacy organization and talking about a study. I don't know. I don't think the NDF, I've looked up, they don't have an anti-cell phone radiation policy. In fact, they've spoken out about how there's no risk in some documents on their site. But that's problematic. I mean, it's disclosed. Uh, but it, you know, he's no longer working in government. Another person retired it, you know, years ago, and he's talking about it. So it's the whole thing. So you probably read all these headlines. <laughs> And yeah. gone, oh my God, is there a smoking gun? It's like there are actually like 15 years of data now, some involving tracking hundreds of thousands of people from cell phone records, um, many, many studies. And in, in a couple studies, there's a concern that if you carve out very limited areas and do all this cherry picking to, so you can have some significance to report, there might be a tiny additional amount of certain kinds of cancers, but the incidence of those cancers is so rare that this tiny incremental amount is more likely noise than anything else because it can't, there's no direct correlative. The other thing is epidemiologists have been tracking uh, cancers that they would expect to be formed and the ones that were measured in the study. Uh, and they've looked back, you know, for trends because given the amount of cell phone usage in the general population, uh, some of which now dates back 20 years, they would be seeing higher rates of cancer of the kinds expected. Yeah. Um, and those are not appearing. Um and yeah, so, those were the two sentences you linked. Um, we're putting this in the show notes to an FAQ that the New York Times did just sort of about the data. And two things jumped out at me in reading it. And one was that the amounts of radiation the rats were exposed to might be higher than what cell phone users typically experience. So that's just kind of like, well, we gave them a bunch of radiation. So but it's like, I if don't you know. talk on your phone with your phone head up set to your head for I think it was, uh, they, it was six, nine hours a day that they were exposed. Yeah. If, if you do that, you're very rare. Most people who do that have a headphone or Bluetooth headset. In fact, the, the, just by the way, people in the study said, uh, involved with the study said, you should use a Bluetooth headset or, or, or you know, a wired a, headset or, or wired headset or whatever, you know, not even yeah. Bluetooth. Uh, so that, and I don't know anybody who holds a phone to their head anymore when they're talking for that for long. Nine so hours a day. Yeah. I know that so, would be a lot. And then the other sentence was, the yeah, just what you said, the incidence of brain cancer in the United States has remained steady since 1992, despite the stark increase in cell phone use. It's like, if that rate of, you know, humans here getting brain cancer hasn't, you know, really changed that much. That that, that says a lot. Like this this issue, um, my very first internship, um, actually my second internship um, in college was at In These Times, which is like a oh, libertarian. Yeah, 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 they're great. It's very interesting um, stuff. Yeah, and I was helping the editor-in-chief at the time research his columns, and that was one of the first things. He was like, you know, get on LexisNexis and find me everything about, like, studies, stu you know, studies about cell phones causing causing brain cancer. So, and this was, like, 1999. <laughs> so oh, yeah, people have been huge. talking about this for a really long time. So it's just like, yeah, I mean, sometimes these things come out and make a splash, but then when you really dig into it and say, okay, like, what does what the data actually show? Yeah, it, it was. It's, it doesn't seem like it's a, as big a deal as some of the reports made it sound like. It does. Yeah, and the fact is, one new study, especially a rat, you know, a rat study that's small, and all the data hasn't been released for outside parties to analyze, um, does not overturn uh, the you know the many many years of, of research and the larger epidemiological trends. And this is kind of the uh, climate change issue. Um, I'm not even going to say it's politics when you say this is a scientific issue. You have a scientific consensus that's overwhelming and many, many thousands of papers and data. And there, there are still questions about what some of it means. But the there's a, you know, a clear consensus and someone says, oh, there's a new paper out and that paper overturns everything everyone thought about climate change. It's like, no, it's a new paper that has to be fitted into and looked in context, replicability, yeah. the analysis. Um, there's this ongoing trend right now uh, to push for more negative results to be released because a lot of science is funded. And when a, a positive result isn't found, like we're, we set out to look at whether there's a connection between uh, you know, the price of tea in China and breeding of fruit flies in Florida. You know, and we didn't find a correlation, so we're not publishing, right? That's what most science winds up being, or a good hunk of science. And the negative stuff is actually very useful because if all you have are positive signals – 
it seems like anything set out to be studied turns out to have an outcome that was expected, uh, which is also there's reflections and bias as well. Um, yeah, one of the most troubling things about this is is the uh, the rats dying younger, like zero cancer incidence in the control group, and those rats dying as significantly younger. These are rats supposed to, you know, this is over a two-year period. This isn't like 10-year-old rats. So over a two-year period, they had significantly higher mortality rate among the control group. That's a red flag. They probably, the problem is they probably should have restarted the experiment or checked all their variables or something because something is wrong. And um, they're going to have to face that. And they may have wasted $25 million or not because they can use the information on the negative side. But again, the bias is to publish only what's good. So they have to push, hey, we've spent $25 million and look, we found this thing no one else did. It's like, well, no one else found it because we don't know how you did this. And <laughs> it's rats and rats are, you know, I think this rat should spend less time talking to the phone in general is my yeah. feeling. How many times? Yeah, have no one's by gotten rat? any calls from any of these rats. Who are they calling? When a rat calls me on the phone, I know I'm going to be on the phone for an hour because they're part of this study. I can't get them off. They keep talking to me. Yeah, telling me about the cage conditions. I don't know. The worst. Uh, Speaking of the worst, what's happening in the Senate? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good transition out of the rat cage Thanks. into the rat cellar. Um, yeah, <laughs> sorry. Uh, oh man. Yes. Well, so the Senate. Yeah, the. Uh, the Senate bill that was introduced to try to— This is um, good news, we promise. It is. To, uh, yeah, this rat cellar is full of good stuff. Let's call it a—well, we call it a Ratskeller. That's better, right? Because it's where you drink in Germany. Yes. Um, so it's not a—Ratskeller does not mean rat cellar anyway. But anyhow, so uh, yeah, this is great news. The uh, the bill that was supposed to—that um, was going to effectively, very simplistically, bar— effective use of any encryption, uh, it's going nowhere. It's going to basically die. Does that draft bill, the Burr-Feinstein, we hate encryption bill, and everyone made fun of it. It was really bad. That's not happening. Not happening. It's good. Officially. Uh, But meanwhile, now on the patent watch front, because, uh, you know, we always have to be looking at patents, um, there's a group trying to shut down iMessage and FaceTime. Yeah. Strange little story. They say that they are not patent trolls. (laughs) <laughs> even though they haven't deployed the technology and uh yeah it's interesting yeah the the, the good news is on the patent front i've been following uh involving radiation studies and um patent stuff for for about the same amount of time and, and uh the supreme court has continuously shut down avenues for uh for people who are non-productive developers of patents so they have patented something or they more typically buy a patent from an inventor who may have been intending to build something and never does and then try to shut something down like podcasting. There was a big case about a podcast-related patent because a guy used to send out cassette tapes and then he was able to get the patent to add a claim that related to digital files. And um, uh, and that was one that skirted. It got in just under a deadline after some uh, uh, legal decisions and laws had changed. Um, there's still some effort in Congress and it's actually bipartisan, but it hasn't progressed to tighten this even further because uh, like a lot of litigation, you can do everything right and you can want it being sued and lose in a patent case, even when all rational human beings would agree that you shouldn't lose <laughs> and that you shouldn't burn up money in the process of being sued either. Uh, so yeah, so this is a group they'd got, they'd uh, won a decision from Apple before in the notoriously uh, easy to win uh, East uh district of texas is um like a patent troll uh it's the place patents go to patent trolls go to troll because um the district optimized how it deals with patents so people will open like fake offices there they'll like rent a mailbox in a building and there's nobody there and they use it to establish a venue blah blah so this company um they uh they had previously won a huge amount of royalties and um uh, from Apple, and it was overturned and um, uh, on appeal. So anyway, it's this company. It's, uh, Vernet X is the company. So I don't know where this will go. I suspect that um, given Supreme Court decisions around it, this is going to be like we're sort of seeing the dying dregs of some of these uh, lawsuits. But um, if iMessage and FaceTime stop working one day, well, you'll know the patent troll won the case temporarily. I just think there's too much harm. Usually judges don't do things that affect third parties with tons of harm unless there's a really compelling uh, case to do so. Yeah. Patent stuff. Um, what else we talked about this? You know, I wrote a piece about crowdfunding. Folks can see it went up last uh, Friday on Macworld's site. Uh, I'm always curious, uh, listeners, uh, how many of you have uh, backed Kickstarter, or Indiegogo, or other uh, 
campaigns. I know I have backed um, dozens. Susie, never, are you a Never craft- for hardware. Have you never? So what have you backed? you backed books or uh, people's backed, projects? I um, have uh, Friends who want to make albums. I've backed a couple albums and I think one indie game, but all like with creators who I actually knew in the meat space ahead of time. The meat space. Yeah, that's uh, so. Yeah, my piece is about um, I felt like we sort of started seeing a lot of big product uh, campaigns. And they're tempting. And I've been very tempted many times. But for the reason that you point out in your piece, which I thought was great, there's a few reasons to back a hardware thing. And that's if you want it first, if you want, like, because you think you're getting a lower price, which that might not, might work out, might not, as we've seen with, you know, like the coolest cooler. Um, and then, or if you want some kind of exclusive thing that's only going to be available to backers, and I, that's just not really like my scene, I don't really care. And then the third is just like, if you just really love the project and you want it to get made, you know, whether or not. And mm-hmm. like, I mean, I, you know, as a journalist, like, I just, like, I have to be a little more detached than that. So, but that's how I feel about the creative projects that I, you know, like if, if I give my friend Katie 20 bucks to make an album with her oboe trio and, you know, all their oboes break and they never make the album, (laughs) that that would, that I wouldn't, that would be fine with me. I would still love her. And her oboe trio is called Threeds and they're amazing. And they've made a couple of albums from Kickstarter. So check them out. Yeah. It's interesting is, you know, I, I go back many years and back in Kickstarter campaigns and I've been writing about Kickstarter since like, 2009. You've had Kickstarter, Kickstarter I've done, campaigns I've done, I've for four, book projects and yes, stuff. Yes, disclosure, I've done crowdfunding. Yeah, I've had four campaigns and two succeeded and two did not. And the two that succeeded, I have fulfilled obligations. So uh, I can't remember if I, I might have chipped in on one of those, but I can't honestly it's, remember. It's okay. If you don't have a hardcover book, then maybe, you, I don't know, It's a, or, or a ebook. But yeah, mine were, I tried to do things that were modest. Even mine, I did a hardcover book as one of them. And it wound up being delayed, but not horribly, but we had a couple setbacks and the printer wound up um it just took uh it was like these extra weeks in which they're like yep it's done and we're not shipping it and then uh my fulfillment house is like yep we're not sending it out because it's sitting on the warehouse for like another 10 days you're like okay i did everything right (laughs) here and And like you knew what you were doing like this stuff is hard like this is why like people have companies like to do things like this and it's i mean like the cool thing about crowdfunding is how democratic it is but then you know that can also come back and bite you in the butt when people who have no experience and just, you know, and it's sometimes if, if it's a runaway success, that can be a problem because all of a sudden they're, you know, they have to scale. They have to start making these things at a scale of like a mature company when, you know, six months ago they were just some guys with a dream. That's exactly it. And even if you're experienced, it's just, you know, the thing that I try to make a differentiation in, in the article is between um, stuff that a person can make on their own. It's like crafts. Or even an intellectual idea or a performance, you know, hey, I'm going to stage a play. It's an original play. We need some money. Boom. I want to do a conference. Conference is well known. Uh, printing a book. Like I've been doing books for 25 years, 30 years of my life. Uh, and making a book is a known thing. It's not fungible. Like not every book is the same. But as a commodity, you and can there's keep... a process in place. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's a whole infrastructure. Yeah. If I, I could call somebody and say, "Make a book for me. Here is money," and they would just go do it. And so right. I got myself more involved in the process. But I hired designers. I work with a printer that does books. You know, does a billion books a year. So any things that any holdups there are scheduling and whatever. So I wound up being, I think, several weeks late, like three or like a month late, I think, as opposed to. Oh, that's awesome know, for a year, Kickstarter. I think a month. I think the first book shipped that's out. That's like not even late. You know, that's well, I think like the, fashionably late. <laughs> the first books, I think, shipped out right within the window of being like four weeks late and then more shipped after that. But so it wasn't horribly late, um, but I was disappointed because I wanted to be, I was well, so close like to the Well, and like the dates are, are often, you know, like it ships in January and or like in the fall, right? Yeah. Do you have, do you have to get super specific about you the do on the campaigns they typically you can say you have to give a, a shipping date but you could say you know it's going to ship by december 2016 and uh you know ship it early and so, but a lot of people in order to get excitement you give the most optimistic date or yeah you give a date you think is conservative and will work and then um uh oh so that, yeah let me let me back up a second though this is where it gets into the production like stuff you can make by yourself is your you know your own limits right or even things where you're making a CD and you're actually cutting CDs or uploading music files to Bandcamp that people can get a code for right that's still within your limits printing a book people know how to print a book people know how to print a CD if you're getting a bunch of CDs made or DVDs 
that's known. Like all those things are known quantities. It's when you get into invention. Uh, yeah, uniquely uniquely manufactured goods. So it's uh, something that has not uh, like I even if I'm buying everything off the shelf, like all my components are off the shelf, I still have to get an injection molded uh, thing made and all these things assembled into a box and then the box um, you know passing UL inspection or whatever. All of those things. Uh, y- there's so many steps between. The Kickstarter started requiring, they said you couldn't use drawings. Uh, you could only use real prototypes. You had to show capabilities that only existed. There were a bunch of things that they changed a few years ago. But even with that, a f- totally working, awesome prototype of a device is still like seven stages from coming off a manufacturing line. And I think you can, and it's hard to go from prototype into any of those additional stages without raising the money to know that you can get to the end because most of the stages involve signing contracts with companies for volume. So you're actually yeah. already and you're underway. you're not going to get paid for a while. So that's, that's yeah. good that they have this in place. No, it's neat. And it's, and I have a lot of, there's a lot of hardware I did get. Like I backed the Elevation Dock is a famous case. I don't know if you remember that one. Uh, it was, this company was going to make this really great heavy, it's like a, a heavy uh, anodized aluminum, aluminum uh, block that had a beautifully carved out slot to put an iPhone in with a charger in the bottom, but it was a dock. Oh, yeah, it was yeah, a dock yeah. connector. They did the kickstarting in the spring. They were underway. They had some holdups, you know, in, in the, they it massively overfunded. They got behind for totally reasonable reasons. By the time it shipped to most people or just after lightning had come out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, if that yeah. hadn't happened, people wouldn't have complained. If they had another year of dock, it would have been like, well, it's a few months late. We got what they wanted, but that came out, which they couldn't have predicted, right? There was no way to know. I still use it. I think I got it four years ago. I got a special model that they don't make. Uh, they only made during that campaign. Um, I was able to, they had, they had actually built it modularly so you could remove the dock connector and like at least stick a lightning cable in, which I did. Then they released an update kit for a super low price to people who had backed it. So you could actually change the circuitry out again because they'd made it slightly modular. I screwed that in and I use it every day. I've been using it every day for several times a day, sometimes for four years. Uh, so I think that's actually a success story, but, uh, there's other things, you know, the coolest cooler is in the middle of an issue where, um, they uh, they've shipped some of their units, but they are delayed on like thirty six thousand. And they're still fighting. And they were actually kind of upset that we called them out in this story a little bit. They were like, "Well, we're we're still gonna get all those people their coolers." But they, I mean, they had to ask for more money. That's appalling. They had to write a bunch of backers and be like, "We're ready to ship you your cooler." By the end of like another summer when you thought you were getting it last exactly. summer and like the summers of your life are slipping away. But if you give us another hundred dollars, we <laughs> promise that for real this time you're going to get your cooler. Yeah. And so, right. So a, a 10,000. Like they did that. Like we didn't make that up. So right. I think they deserve a little like crap yeah. thrown in their direction. I am, I'm only skeptical. I think what I wrote was I said their future remains in doubt. And that is not because I think they're about to fail, but more like. They've spoken publicly. They have no lines of financing. Uh, the PR person wrote and said they don't have their rapidly arranging uh, new orders from retailers. They do not have signed contracts, from what I can tell. They, you know, they have a lot of really angry people. If you look at the reviews in Amazon, because they started selling through Amazon in order yeah. to raise money before they started ship before before they delivered everything to the backers, which I think was it was tens of thousands of units, and they have about thirty six thousand units left to ship to backers. They started selling on Amazon because they needed the cash to keep the company running. So they're in a very precarious situation. Now, I hope they actually, I mean, you know, personally, I hope they uh, get everything out because they have all these people they owe stuff to. Um, but I think uh, it's a very reasonable thing to say that it's unclear what's going to happen. They did get 10,000 or people representing about 10,000 coolers paid them this extra almost $100. They got a million bucks suddenly, which is going to let them take – they have a ton of stuff assembled. So the thing is a lot of this has been manufactured. It's sitting there. They need to ship it and they need the money to get it from China to America, finish some, I think, assembly parts and get it out uh, – shipped out in the mail and or shipped out in the – They're close. It's not yeah. It's not a complete failure. They haven't crashed and burned. It's just it's – a, it's a really rough no. road. And people – mixed reviews of the thing. It weighs uh, more than people thought. The wheels may not be so great in sand and so forth. You can find one tons of one-star and tons of five-star reviews. I read a lot of, of those reviews. reviews and was like, oh, I don't even want this thing anymore. <laughs> but well, I remember I know, that's seeing it on Kickstarter being like, whoa, that really is the coolest cooler. They also uh, – I think we're selling it for – what was it? I think early dot- – Early backers got it for two hundred something dollars. It was very cheap. They're selling it. Yeah, for, now it's like five hundred bucks or something. Yeah, well, discounted to four hundred on Amazon. So it was selling for five hundred for a while on Amazon as list price. Now it's four hundred, and I think backers that is paid way too much. I don't I think want backers like five paid, coolers for that. Well, I think backers paid. I want to say they paid 
200 and with the extra 100 bucks, like 300. So it's still a bargain in that sense, but they clearly underpriced uh, what they need to sell it for. So they're, I mean, so they're a great example. They may or may not fulfill. And you have other things though, like the Pebble Watch. Pebble did two passes at Kickstarter. They're uh, back. Yeah, they're coming back for a third. And, uh, you know, they just had some layoffs, but they also raised another, I think it was $26 million. So Pebble shipped products that people like. They founded their company on the backs of a crowdfunding campaign. And even though they've been late for delivery, I think with both campaigns in different ways, they didn't ship a piece of crap. They shipped something people like. It was out um, in some yeah. ways ahead of the market. And now with a more richly developed smartphone market, market they remain an interesting alternative because of their approach, uh, because it's low power. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The new one looks really cool too. And they have a proven track record. Exactly. So that's, that's a different thing. And that, so that it's interesting. You were kind of mentioning, you know, the mainstream media before, and that's like, a, that's been a problem for the tech press. So, I mean, you have a lot of, you know, you've, you've been a backer, you've been a project person. I've been someone who gets pitches for Kickstarter products oh, like yeah. every single day and at first i mean yeah like even a few years ago like there was a lot more coverage of these things because we all you know we want to believe in in the promise and they make a cool video and the renders look great and and you know sites need content and they need cool things to write about so it can be really tempting to to you know jump on some of these and it's hard for us to know like which you know which thing is going to be a pebble and which thing is going to be you know a CST01 smartwatch that never mm -hmm. ships so so yeah i mean a lot of sites have have had to kind of St after just, you know, guessing and making it up as we go along, have had to stop and say, like, OK, we need a policy and like, what are we going to cover on Kickstarter? How is it going to work? Because, yeah, then when a project really blows up, you know, you don't want to ignore it, but you also like sort of don't want to pile on. And then, you know, if it fails, people are like, wow, like, you know, I just got burned. And, you know, I don't want my readers to get burned, but it's it's really tricky trying to figure out which ones to cover. Yeah, I, I think there becomes this, uh, I said this in the article, but I think this is what it comes down to for me. And, I, you know, and actually an interview I had with Kickstarter, they effectively said the same thing. They're like, if you aren't in love with something, should you really back it? Like, that's something they think about, too. They don't necessarily, they don't think of themselves as a store. They don't want people to think of Kickstarter as a pre-order because it's it's not exactly you know they the contract is written between uh, not between Kickstarter and you it's between the Kickstarter essentially facilitates a contract between you and the project creator and the project yeah. creator is obligated to fulfill and if they don't fulfill there's this long list of conditions that have to be made for them to be considered not in. Uh, violation of the terms and, you know, Attorney General Washington State uh, intervened in one case on behalf of Washington consumers. Um, there's some other uh, lawsuits uh, uh, in progress. There's, uh, you know, things in bankruptcy uh, courts in the U.S. and U.K. that are proceeding to see whether backers actually have a stake if they're like uh, creditors or if they have no stake at all in receiving any money back um, or, or any outcome. Uh, so I think it's not that you should only back things you love, but I think if you back something that's not for love, you really have to wonder whether you're going to get the thing, even though, so, oh, so here's the, the statistics are that about, um, uh, someone did this rigorous analysis that I cite in the article and you can read their report and, you know, about 10% of campaigns fail about 20%. The outcome isn't yet clear because they're either within the window or they haven't shut down or the reward, you know, the rewards are late, but are still ongoing. Um, so there's, you know, 70%. Uh, based on this lengthy study across every category of uh, Kickstarter specifically, uh, actually do fulfill and people believe that they got what they were promised. That's actually pretty amazing. My issue is that we don't know in terms of dollar amounts, some of these bigger campaigns that raise millions or tens of millions of dollars, some of those have completely failed or in a situation where we don't know, yet know uh, what the outcome is going to be. Now, if Coolest in, you know, in six months, if they've delivered all the backlogged units, and it handled all the warranty issues, even if there's negative reviews, but they've delivered something that works and is essentially meets the spec and they're selling it in retail, you'd say, okay, Coolest is a success, we could say in six months. They actually did it. They were late. That sucks, but they got there. But right now we're looking at a, a number of campaigns that have either uh, – that have shut down – uh, that are in some jeopardy or the deadline's been pushed back so far that even if they fulfill, they've now lost that edge of why people got in as excited as they did in the first place. So, yeah. I, so I don't think it's – uh, the thing for me is smaller projects, uh, like there's a certain scale 
that uh, succeed more of the time. The bigger ones succeed less often than smaller ones by, you know, slight factor. So I think if you see something that's really fascinating and you're like, I really want this thing to happen and I'd like it, I'd like it to exist. And I also want one. Uh, and it's a modest project. The odds are much more likely that it's going to actually be something you get. And, um, that's where I'm coming down. I think in the future, if I back things in uh, the manufactured product category, it's going to be stuff that's a lot more, like I say, modest. Yeah. And if it's hardware and you really want it, but it's like a lot of money and you, you just don't want to take the risk, it's a risk. Like just, just wait. realize that you're taking a risk. <laughs> right. Yeah, wait. wait. It'll be, it, they'll sell it in the store eventually, maybe even for less. Like who knows? Well, if it's um, a $500,000 goal and they raise $10 million, your being part of that doesn't make it more likely that it happens. Uh, yeah. You can just, at that point, the only thing you have going for you either, like we said, like something exclusive that's only for backers or you want things special uh, or getting a discount, but that doesn't always apply because often they'll say, and this isn't anybody being misleading, but often they'll say the retail price is going to be $500 in the Kickstarter campaign. You're going to get it for 300, but once it goes into channels, uh, manufacturers can't control the actual retail price of anything. So they may be selling it into the channel so cheaply that some outlets will sell it for 300 bucks. They'll take less of a markup in order to sell more, more of them. And you won't actually get a much or any of a discount in any case by going in early. Yeah. I mean, and it's tough for Kickstarter because they have one model for all these different categories and it works super well, I would argue, for, you know, creative kind of things. Um, it's perfect for that. And like for, you know, like software and things where like you make it once, you have a lot of control over that and then you just send out a bajillion copies and everyone goes home. But hardware things, yeah, it's just that that's that's a really tough category. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this piece. I think everyone should go read it and think harder about what hardware you back on Kickstarter. Thank you. And I also say, I mean, software is obviously it's whole a whole other thing. But um, the deal is that software raises relatively little money from Kickstarter compared yeah. to manufactured products. Um, and there have been some you know software flare outs, too, or things that have taken like three years to finish because software is hard. I mean, software is always difficult. But software – doesn't involve, you know, flying to China and sitting for three weeks Customs on a manufacturing line. And, yeah. and uh, it's just, Suppliers I mean, I've talked to so many makers and it's like, you can do everything uh, absolutely right and still have um, uh, the guys behind Studio It's a Meet. wonder everything gets made at all. Like, it well, sounds oh, yeah, really yeah. hard. No, I mean, anything <laughs> by anybody. Well, this is like, here's my counterexample. As you look at a company like Anchor, it's A-N-K-E-R. Yeah, and, uh, which uh Which started as like, uh, as Google engineer's wife started the company and then he, I think, left his job and they, I forget if they're back in China now running it from there, but it, it started as like a little bit of a side business and then it grew and grew. And I love their products. I mean, you know, they're, there are other companies like them that are more established have been out for a while. But I think Anchor has a rise from zero to like making a ton of stuff really very often very competitively priced and really super nice. When I've tested stuff recently, Anchor's products often come out you know, at the top or near or among a set of items at the top, uh, like the USB-C battery they make, uh, a quick battery. Um, but they're an interesting case because they, you know, they were sort of self-funded, got themselves up into this position, I think they, I don't know how much venture capital of any they've taken, but they just sell a ton of stuff. And like, they want to make a new cable. They don't go and crowdfund it. They just do the R&D and they develop it. And I mean, that's, you know, when I see crowdfunding cables or crowdfunding campaigns for cables and batteries, I'm like, you know, there's a lot of companies actually making these already. You don't need to go with the extra risk of being involved up front in something that's being commercially reproduced or produced, um, Sometimes there's niche things that you can't get from anywhere. And if somebody's going to make an adapter that is absolutely suited for your needs and no commercial firm of uh, other kind of commercial firm is making it, then maybe there's a motivation to get in there too. But uh, I'd also appoint people to Studio Neat as a company. They, they uh, started with the Glyph, which was an iPhone tripod adapter. And they've done several crowdfunding campaigns. They do iOS software. Uh, they do this uh, ice kit, uh, uh, the Neat ice kit kit um which is cool and um they have the a lot cosmonaut, of lessons that big uh stylus that yeah. looks like a crayon yeah and awesome. they they uh, have a book out they do a podcast right now on the relay fm network about uh making products and uh they have a lot of wisdom to share so i always turn to them because they've made every kind of thing and um not at like super massive scales but at large enough scales um they're dealing with volume issues and uh you know even their ice maker had seven different parts uh, to make a big, you know, cube of uh, like uh, 
bubbleless ice in the free in a normal freezer, and everything worked great except for one foam piece. This one foam piece turned out not to be able to be manufactured to the tolerances they needed, and it held them up for weeks and weeks. And it wasn't the fault of the company they'd worked with. It wasn't their fault. It just turned out when you got to the manufacturing stage, the foam was a problem. All their other complicated stuff was fine. Yeah, right. we're not calling anybody idiots, but just no, in the interest no. of consumer advocacy, you know, it's your, just it's your step money. Back. Step Buy back things and, in stores. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple last things here. Um, Apple uh, report came out that Apple is considering a bid for Time Warner in the past, but it did not decide to do that, which I thought was uh, fascinating. I have to say, I didn't realize that uh, Time Warner owned uh, HBO. Yeah. Should I, have I mean, known there's that? only like two media companies in the whole universe now, right? <laughs> like it's the, that one and the other one. I so. don't follow, I clearly don't follow things. So I'm like, what? Well, they own Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers, uh, you know, and HBO and CNN. And I honestly had no idea. And this is apparently uh, last year. And it's an interesting idea because you have Comcast owning, you know, NBC. You have um, uh, various, you have, you have networks or you have uh, ISPs owning content creators. Um, and, uh, you know, Microsoft and Google do not own um, media companies, but I wouldn't be surprised if that changed at some point, too. I mean, Facebook doesn't own a media company, but... Well, like uh, Netflix and Amazon are kind of becoming content companies. And if yeah. Apple was able to, you know, make a big acquisition like this, it could catch up to be like, look, you know, we have a ton of content creators who will make, you know, content for our services that we can now launch so, yeah, I mean, HBO has been super successful with both mm -hmm. streaming services and making awesome content. So, it, you know, that would be a great move for them. It would have made sense. I mean, it would have made sense. Yeah, Apple's, uh, you know, commissioning some of its uh, some original uh, video of its own uh, series. And um, I mean, Netflix has lost some of I can't wait to hear, see that Dr. Dre show. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, the, Dr. Dre's Netflix has been hour. turning increasingly to stuff that they're developing in-house because – and they've been dropping – or losing contracts for some other things. So, um, you know, Netflix may wind up feeling more like an in-house production company. Uh, I don't know. There's some balance where if they, I mean, they lost Doctor Who recently. Um, there's some other things. They just signed that big um, Disney deal. Do they have, do they have Star Trek or do they lose Star Trek? I've forgotten. That's going to change to CBS's service, Paramount. Uh, uh, I don't know. At least try to go. So some major, but like there's, there's a lot of stuff happening. And we were joking, I think some months ago, it's, you know, a few years ago, it was like, you can get everything you want through one channel, uh, one service. Now it's like, okay, now you need to subscribe again. You know, it's like, you need all these different cable channels. Maybe we can do it through one place. And now it's like, no, you need all these cable channels. Or again, they're just they're just all streaming services instead of cable channels now. Yeah, it's like you be careful what you wish for because we wanted we wanted cable to be more a la carte. And now streaming is like super a la carte. And we're like, but I have to subscribe to like 10 different things. And it's like the cable people are like hitting themselves in the head being like, duh, that's why you had cable. <laughs> although, it's, although you could wind up paying less. Like, you know, if you're paying. I seven, pay less. Yeah, I if pay you're paying less. $70 a month or, or more, some people are paying a lot more for just the cable part of your, of your you know, cable, if internet, you like sports, whatever bill. If you like HBO, like cable yeah. is still kind of a deal because. It, yeah, it's true. No, those extras right. add up. But if you just want to watch Netflix, you're like, there's there's enough. Like, how much TV do you need? <laughs> well, if you watch broadly, cable Read makes sense. <laughs> if you watch if you watch broadly, cable makes sense. If you watch more specifically, like you could have Netflix, Amazon Prime, uh, and I don't know something else, like one other you know a bundle for ten or twelve dollars a month, and you can spend thirty or forty bucks a month and get you know a massive amount of programming uh, compared to paying seventy or hundred dollars a month for for a cable subscription. But it does start to add up. It's just good to have choices because, I mean, if you were just, you know, a single person, you just have your stuff that you like. But if you have a large family, like, you know, everyone has different tastes and yeah. But it's yeah, true. look, look for more of this. Like this is not going to be the last we hear of Apple trying to, you know, buy its way into this, this streaming service yeah. market in video and content. Well, and one last thing, and speaking of Amazon in passing, is uh, we'll talk about this more in the future. I feel like we don't have enough information now to talk about it much, but Apple apparently has an Echo-like device in the works. And it may or may not be the Apple TV. Yeah, which should be fun. I don't know if we have to use remote control if it's the so, Apple yeah, TV. Yeah, so when the Apple TV came out, I mean, people thought that was going to be the big home hub, and in, you know that hasn't really materialized. We might hear more about that at WWC. But yeah, so you... the. The remote has a microphone, but with the things like the Amazon Echo and the Google Home, 
it's all about there's just a wide listening microphone that's listening all the time for a command prompt and then you can talk to it and ask it questions. So, uh, you know, Apple might say, yeah, we want in on that and there will, you know, because they're already doing Hey Siri on the phones. But, you know, people might be a little creeped out to put listening speakers all over their house. Um, When I wrote up the rumor, I was like, okay, so the Apple TV is in one room of your house and then maybe like Amazon um, Echo has like an accessory called the Dot that you can hook up to speakers that you already have Mm -hmm. and then that puts them on your network and kind of, you know, has a microphone and sort of turns them into like satellite Echoes. So they could do something like that maybe where like the Apple TV is the hub and and then, you know, the rest of it's all over your house because just having it in the living room would maybe that would be the privacy compromise. Like, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're spying on your living room, but only your living room. And you can go in the kitchen and have private conversations in there. But in all the advertising, they show the echo being used in the kitchen. And the kitchen is big because, I mean, that's where everybody is. And the kids are doing their homework and mom's making a recipe and all that. Um, awesome. This is just turned into a country stuff. western song, by the way. It's like a or, yeah. or a John Denver song, maybe. It is. It's very John Denver. So I, it's. I'm really interested to see what they're going to do. I'm clearly they're going to have to put a lot of thought into it, and not just so it doesn't seem. You know, it seems like an Apple solution that makes sense for its customers, and not just a oh crap like other companies are doing this. We need to do one too, which is an Apple style. So I have faith that they'll do it well. I, uh, but I it's a service, so who knows? I, oh, oh no, I agree with all this. I, we'll talk more about it too because I think we'll get more information. We'll start leaking out now, but I have to say the timing is, uh, let's say suspicious in that, um, you have people raising concerns. Uh, I mean, Marco Arment, we talked about his essay, uh, not long ago about, uh, in which he's like, I'm a little worried that Apple isn't moving towards this, you know, future in which, uh, Everything is intelligent, agent-driven in a way that actually works. And Google and Facebook and others are investing in it, and Amazon investing in it heavily. And what if they leave Apple behind in this? What happens? And these are all very reasonable concerns. And then you start saying like, oh, oh, Apple's hiring. You know, you know. I saw this story come out uh, about Apple's acquisition uh, a year yeah. and a half ago. Like that came. Yeah. It's like, oh, they bought this company that it can that it can do what Siri does but with a fraction of the, you know, and then it's like, oh, Apple's got an Echo competitor. I'm thinking strategic leaks from within well, a company. Well, wrote a column about that too, that he wasn't yeah. worried. And yeah, yeah there was I think there's stra- strategically, like, well, I'm not to, Mossberg is, he's a very opinionated person. So I'm not saying he can be swayed, but you got to call, get background information. Hey, you know, we, you know, we saw people are concerned about this. Let, we're going to slip the kimono and tell you a little bit what's going on. Or they do strategic leaks. People are authorized to speak to the press not you know on not for, uh, without attribution and so mm-hmm. the information comes out uh and it's totally it's official it's just not public so apple calls somebody up and says hey uh you know we got this thing we're working on we're not going to tell you much about it but it's it's happening and then the reporter develops other sources pulls information out so uh it's clearly intentional that after a little bit of buzz about apple not being robust in this space suddenly we get a, a bunch of stories telling us how robust they are. So. <laughs> yeah, that is a, that is a little curious. Yeah. It's, I mean, only say suspicious. It's really good PR. It's what you should do. It's what I would do in that circumstance. I wouldn't suddenly have Tim cook calling up 50 outlets and saying, Oh, we got all kinds of stuff going on. I would strategically leak information. So it seemed like it was coming out from nowhere. Uh, and I would be calling some prominent people, prominent reporters to, to fill them in on background and tell them when there's time comes, we'll get them in to the lab. So they'll be invited to the event. That's what I would do. And I expect that is what is happening. If we see a Siri SDK API kind of thing come out of WWC, that will be a huge clue that something like, you know, we're on the road to this, to this AI future. But if if Apple wants to keep Siri very much to itself, then, then yeah, I have my doubts. Yeah, because that, that was one of the stories I forgot. Right, that was last week. Because we have, uh, we have Apple. Uh, right, the, the Siri SDK may be coming. We have oh, Apple bought this amazing firm story, and we have the oh, Apple is working on an Echo like device. Maybe it's an Apple TV or a it's the rule modification. Threes. Yep, yep. And it, again, it's it's exactly what Apple should be doing. And it doesn't mean that uh, anything is fabricated. All these things are plausibly a hundred percent true. 
And they're choosing to push information out there to counter a narrative that's being spread in part by other companies that are, I mean, Marco's not a company. Marco's an independent human being who no one can, no one can sway what he thinks. Um, there's other companies out there calling the press and, and giving information on background or, or saying, you know, Apple seems really far behind on this. Right. You know, doesn't Apple look tired? Don't you think Apple looks tired? <laughs> I don't know. They should smile more. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, You're that, so pretty. I think, oh my God, they're so shiny. Uh, I think that wraps it up for this week, though. Um, again, a funny quiet news week, and we have a lot to talk about. But uh, there's never a quiet news week when oh, we're talking well, about we're, the news. Uh, we're moving, we're barreling down towards uh, WWDC. It's coming up on uh, oh gosh, one of the two June weeks? 13th. Yeah, two weeks from now. So um, uh, I hey, think that- podcast listeners, um, if you're coming to town for WWC, we're going to be doing a little uh, happy hour, and it's it's very invite only. It's you know super shishi and exclusive. Um, but since you listen to the podcast. We're Ooh. like pretty much best friends. So you should get in touch with me. Holler at me on Twitter. Um, if you were on if you were on the list last year, like you know, you're you're fine. I'm gonna invite you again. But if you wanna if you're gonna be in town, like come by our terrace. I'll uh give you a taco and some beer and we'll talk. It'll be really fun. So get, get uh, contact me on Twitter. I've heard from a few people already. You're all on, and then like invites should probably go out this week. I'm a little behind. So um I'm S F S O O Z. Like San Francisco Sues. That's me on Twitter. And uh, just send me a tweet. Tell me you're coming to town. You want to come to the party. It's going to be Wednesday the 15th um, from 4 to 6. So you can stop by us. You can still go to the smile party later. Um, Yeah, it'll be great. This is good. This is like the uh, Ferris Bueller ending to the podcast. If you listen this long, if you listen this far, yeah, yeah what are you still doing here? No, come on get, by you're the office. Secret information. I unfortunately yeah. will not be at WWDC, but I will be, I'm sure, reporting. From my Seattle uh, lair, and uh, amazingly, the event starts on June 13th, so we might actually be able to talk on that week's podcast about things that are happening uh, that have just happened, because uh, Apple seems to time things that happen like Tuesday afternoons after we record or on Wednesdays. Yeah. Uh, this time. And the, yeah. I, so, and like last year, our party was on Tuesday, so like that was way too close to the keynote, and I was like running around like a crazy person. So this year, we pushed the party out till Wednesday. Glenn and I can podcast on Tuesday Ooh. as scheduled. Everything's going to be fine. Excellent, excellent. So two weeks away for that, and um, and we'll we'll find out what amazing and magical things are going on. Uh, but in the meantime, I've been Glenn Fleischman. I've been talking to Susie Oaks, and Susie, I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you again. A pleasure. This has been episode 510 of the Macworld Podcast for June 1st, 2016. Write us at podcast at macworld.com or find us at macworld.com, and we will talk to you again next week.